Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From building a well-balanced college list and developing a payment strategy to creating a high school plan and more. Each episode will help guide your family through various steps of the process. Enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and it's been a minute since I've had the opportunity to host this show. I'm going to see if I can remember how to do it. Uh, I think my next step is to welcome my first guest, uh, if I recall correctly. And so I'm going to do that. And we're going to start with somebody who's very familiar to me because he is a finance expert uh, hailing out of the Midwest uh, here on our college coach team. We've got Zach Grease back on the show with us. Hi, Zach. How are you? Howdy. Good. How are you, Ian? I'm doing well. It's great to have you here. It is, of course, the first week of July at this point, and students are in a position where they are starting to think about that move to college, it's now becoming a little bit more serious, a little bit more real, uh, something that is no longer theoretical. Maybe bills are starting to arrive. Maybe the cost of college is something that is sinking in a little bit more. And so we wanted to bring you on the show today to talk about what students might need to do if they still need financing for college, if they haven't completely dialed in their plan for paying and what their plan might be at this point. Uh, Does that sound about right? in terms of our goals for today's show? Sounds spot on. And I think you're right. I remember back to my financial aid days and we would always send out our preliminary invoice, which was a tentative invoice with no due date right after July started. So I think you've um, timed this segment perfectly. So everybody is so excited around April because they've gotten into these schools and in May yes. they've made this commitment and decision. And then once July rolls around, well, that, then that's when the bill comes due. And yep. it's like, oh my goodness, this, uh, yeah, we, we have to pay for this. Um, so let's talk about things that families might not be aware of at this point in time besides loans, right? So a lot of people are, are familiar with loans and we've had a few different conversations on the show about loans in the past. Are there some other tools that should be on people's radar uh, at this point in the, in the year? Uh, beyond. I think so. I think there's one tool that for some families could be considered in some way alone, even though it would typically not be a loan that you apply for and you, you seek based on your credit and things like that. And, and that would be simply using a college's payment plan. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the reason I think it's helpful to start there is for a family that perhaps has a strong cash flow, but maybe they haven't saved or can use some of their cash flow to make payments on and avoid borrowing, you know, as much as they may think they need. This can be a really nice low cost way to take advantage of something the college typically will present. So we, when I was a financial aid director would charge families August 15th, but they had a free option to break that payment, whatever it was apart into four monthly payments throughout the fall. And so if you take a $20,000 bill for the fall term, you would then only pay $5,000 in the middle of August, $5,000 in the middle of September, $5,000 in the middle of October, and $5,000 in the middle of November. And and in some cases, I know families might say, oh, we can do that. We just didn't have the $20,000. And I think that's a nice way to sort of break down lending from a true loan strategy to perhaps something that might help them in a different way. Now, remind me, Zach, where you worked in financial aid before you mm-hmm. came to College Coach. 
it, it was in the Midwest and it was a small school called Loris College, Catholic uh, college and uh, enrollment of about 1,500 uh, students. Okay. And yeah. And I'm, I'm curious how many schools, and if you can just ballpark it by percentage, tend to offer these kinds of payment plans. I mean, I, th- I guess for a particular family, the question is just, it, does my school offer it or not? But what is the likelihood that that is something that might be available to families? My sense would be that almost all colleges have some kind of a payment schedule. The the devil's in the details, I think, in a lot of cases, though, because we happen to use four payments. I've seen some colleges use two. Mm-hmm. We happen to have a free payment schedule. I, I know some colleges may charge, some may not. So I think if I were in a family's um, shoes and I wanted to explore this, you may find it at orientation if you attend something and there's a, a student account seminar. You may find it on the website or you could always email. I'm thinking the admissions office and they can connect you with who you need to be connected with to learn more. But I think the questions I might ask, should you be interested in this, would be how many how many payments can I break this apart into? And yeah. is there a cost? You know, is it a flat fee? Is it a percentage fee? Things like that. And at least then a family could really evaluate if this option will help them given their situation. And this feels like something that has become a little more familiar to the consumer these days. You look at like a firm, uh, you know, yes. showing up on different, um, you know, checkout options when you're buying yes. something online. Um, my thought on something like if it's a hundred dollars and I'm breaking up it into twenty five dollars, that I, mean, I I can just pay the hundred dollars now. But for something that is twenty thousand for the whole semester, there is that kind of relationship between the income that's coming in and and how you think about it, and especially if you're not accruing any interest. That's mm-hmm. a really great opportunity to go oh, ahead and wait. break that into chunks so that you're not paying that lump sum right off the top. Bingo. Um, is there any other reason to, I suppose that if a student enrolls at the start of a semester, the full bill for that semester will need to be paid. I'm thinking about contingencies where a student say has to take a leave for some reason, mm-hmm. decides not to complete. Um, typically the they still need to pay for that full semester, even in that case. Is that right? Yes. I most colleges, if I had to guess, are going to have some kind of an arrangement where as as the student progresses through class and attends classes based on the number of days they attend at some point, they're going to have to pay the bill whether or not they truly finish the semester. Yeah. As an example, we had a, you know, by the time you hit the fourth week of the term, if you had been attending class and showing up and doing homework, it was considered that you had used the, the product, you know, and you would pay for it then. And I, I think that's reasonable. I think colleges are not looking for a, a piecemeal approach to, uh, you know, g- gaining credits or gaining exposure to the the school. And of course, most of our listeners are going to be in a position where their students are going to have a really a, a wonderful transition to college, and, and I Absolutely. think are going to be quite successful as well. Now, now I said let, setting aside loans, but I, loans are still an important part mm-hmm. of of any major purchase. I had to explain to my. Uh, we ran into my. Um, mortgage broker last night at ice cream. And I had to explain to my kids why you need a mortgage in order to buy a house, because we don't have all that money to be able to Mm -hmm. buy a house without having a loan. And so loans can be a really effective way to fund big purchases like education. Um, As families are starting to think about borrowing for this fall at this late hour, what are some considerations that they need to be looking at? Yeah, I I think... um... You know, there's there's a visual. I always try to encourage families to keep in mind under this educational lending umbrella term. You know, we sometimes families may call it student loans, but I, I use educational loans because 
it doesn't have to necessarily be in the student's name, mm-hmm. um, but it's for the purpose of education. Mm-hmm. And so if we have a visual of a quadrant, we would have two rows, two columns. And in the rows, we're really trying to answer the question of who is going to be the borrower? Is it the student or a non-student person? You know, most commonly, probably parents could be a relative. And then in the columns, we have who is going to be the lender. And so we have the Department of Education or the government as lender option number one. And then you have private lenders, which would be sort of a a broad term for the second option. And so in this quadrant, then you have student educational loans from the government. You have student private loans from a non-governmental entity and you have parent educational loans from the government and then parent private loans as well. So I think the first thing I always encourage families to think about here is how do they want this structured? You know, do you want the student to be the lead borrower? Is it something parents are going to gift to their child? And so they're going to take on the debt in their name or does it look a little different? Um, So I think that's helpful. And then within this sort of setup, you can then start to label pros and cons from one option related to another. You know, I might in the, the federal parent plus loan program, the interest rates are 8% this coming year, about 8%. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes may say, well, that seems high, but the federal parent plus option is a flat rate product. So anybody who gets approved for that loan is going to have the same interest rate that other borrowers may. And so sometimes may say, well, we want to try a parent private educational loan because we think we can get perhaps a lower rate. We've based on our borrowing aptitude. And so I think there's a lot of different ways to navigate, but I, I think once you have that visual in mind, it helps you get a better sense of what questions to ask and what might be important to you. No, that's helpful. And, and you describe the columns as being government loans, private loans, but we could also imagine that there are multiple columns in that private loan space, depending on who those lenders are and considering yeah, those against each other. Right. Totally. And and you're right. You know, you have private loans. Some could be, you know, we think of private as far as industry based companies who have built a business on lending. There are some states that offer their own version of a private loan. And so I think if you happen to reside in that state, it could be a nice option for you. It's very state specific. Um, for example, yeah. Texas has one and there's a couple on the East Coast that I know of. But I do think it's good to at least check those out because you, you really want to be able to understand the relativity of each of these benefits in relation to the others. You are right there flexing your muscle in terms of understanding what these different opportunities are, looking at Texas, looking at different state loans. You've got this great database just in your head based on your experience of where these things exist. Most families that are listening, this might be their first time paying for college, maybe a second time, and they don't necessarily have access to that information. So where should they go, Zach? Where do people go to find what kind of loans might be available to them and how to make the the right decisions once they set up that matrix that you described? Awesome question. I, I think there's there's two places you could go. Most schools create what's called a preferred lender list and, and where they may rank based on their own student use of educational loans, which, which private options are the best. Um, so that would be a nice place to start. The, the devil's in the details again here because I do think if I was gonna ask you what are your top three picks of places in your area for um, Italian food? The first question you would say is, well, what do you like in Italian food? And so I think in this same case as well, um, when you're looking at a school's preferred lender list, you have to understand what they are saying is, is key for these lenders. Is it interest rate? Is it the number of years you can extend repayment? 
Is it the percentage of students who get approved? Because you may say, I want the lowest interest rate. And the school may say, well, this lender's good because they approve 98% of people, but their rates are really high. So I yeah. think that's a good question. But I think the preferred lender would be list would be a great place to start. And then I also think by this point, if a family has chosen a school, a conversation with the financial aid office would be really critical because that office can tell you what state loans are available and, and really help you think through this with more specifics. This kind of I'm, la system. I'm laughing on screen because I think just about every time I talk to one of my finance colleagues, they, they say, and you should always talk to the financial aid professionals at the college where you're planning to attend because Bingo. they're there to help you, right? Make, make and, friends and it's with a, that office. <laughs> it's a great reminder because everybody yeah. that's on our finance team comes from that financial aid background and and is open to conversation and I think is really dedicated to helping families figure out how to pay for their education. So Zach, this is great. Um, any so, other final tips as we close out this, this segment for today? No, nothing uh, from my end. I just will wish everybody luck. And, and again, I think I'm just going to echo your point that I think financial aid office is going to be uh, helping families from the point when they get admitted all the way through until they graduate and perhaps even after. So I think that's a really good office to develop some connections with. Maybe you have an individual there who's your advisor, but I, I think in going through this journey, I would really want a contact in that office just for these types of questions. And so if you don't have one, I think this is a good time to reach out and connect and meet online or in person, depending on the college's location. So um, that's great. Yeah, I think that's great. Thanks a lot, Zach. I appreciate those tips. Uh, it's always great to start with a little bit of background in finance. And I know that it's very top of mind for students heading to college in the fall right now. So I appreciate it. Uh, folks, when we come back, we are going to take a trip out to New York for our final two segments with a focus on the SUNY system and then the Honors College at the University of uh, Buffalo. So a lot of cool stuff for us to explore. Don't go away. We will be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results, 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice goals. Visit getintocollege.com experts to learn more. 
Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to the show. Today, we are going to talk a lot about the state university system in New York. And uh, in order to do that, I'm welcoming uh, my colleague, Ryan Kreps, who's a former admission officer for Brown University. We don't really care about that today. I think that the more important piece about where you are, Ryan, is that you live in New York and have been doing a lot of research and investigation of the state university system. So we're really delighted to have you here today. Awesome. I'm excited to be here and thanks for having me. Of course. Now, I live out on the West Coast and we spend a lot of time talking about the University of California system. I work a lot with students in the University of California. I know a lot about the UC system. I know very little about the state university system in New York. And so I'm going to sort of let you guide me a little bit and explain to me some of the different components of the state system, some of the features of different campuses, ways to think about it, and also explore a little bit about the admission process, because fundamentally we are here to help students understand more about the application to college. So let's just start with the basics. How would you describe the SUNY system from a 10,000 foot view for somebody who might be considering one of those campuses for their college applications? Absolutely. Well, SUNY got a late start in terms of the world of state universities. It actually started in 1948 because there are just so many private colleges in, in New in York. Houston. Yeah. Um, and now it's, it's grown to, to 64 colleges, and that's inclusive of liberal arts colleges, research universities, uh, specialized in technical colleges, land-grant institutions, and of course, community colleges. So there's a SUNY for just about everybody. And wow. one of the interesting facts, as I was learning about the SUNY system, is that there's a SUNY uh, essentially in, in within 15 miles of every New Yorker. Within 93, 93% of New Yorkers have a SUNY within 15 miles of them. Wow. And nearly 100% within, within 30 miles. So everybody has access to different parts of this system. And that's how they like to think about uh, the university system, is that there are different colleges throughout um, meeting the needs, the diverse needs of, of, of New Yorkers across the state. Um, and one of the big things that New York made headlines for in, in recent years is the Excelsior Scholarship. So yeah. this scholarship will actually cover tuition for families with adjusted incomes, uh, adjusted gross incomes of 125000 or below. And as I started looking into the details of, of this award, found out that 53% of students that are attending four-year colleges in New York State are not paying tuition. So this is a really accessible system. It's out there as people are thinking about rising tuition costs, the cost of college, student debt. People are looking at, at state systems now as, as viable options for getting a college education. Yeah, it's, I love that you're framing that accessibility both in terms of proximity, right? The 15-mile stat, I think is really great. Um, and then also in terms of affordability. I'm struck initially just at the number, the sheer number of institutions. You said 54 in total. 
Now, I think about the California system, you've got only a small handful of UCs, 23 CSUs, some community colleges all over the state. But this number seems much larger for a, for a smaller geographic footprint. Is, is that the intention? Is that what New York was going for when they created the system? Was we really want this to be something that is accessible to people all across the state? Absolutely. And, and New York puts a feather in its cap for being the largest public comprehensive university system. So a lot of people talk about California, but New York is the biggest and it has campuses across the state so that all people have access to those. And the thing that is perhaps interesting for those that are thinking about getting a post-secondary education, but maybe not a four-year college degree, is that New York has both community colleges that have focused on the transfer from two-year to four-year colleges, as well as, well as technical colleges that focus on developing skills that are uh, for students that are focused on a partic particular career path right out of high school. And that's great because I think a lot more families are starting to look at those opportunities. They're, they're seeing pathways for students that require some form of education, but maybe not a two-year degree or a four-year degree, but instead sort of a, a technical education pathway. And so it's great to know that those things are out there. How do students typically engage with that SUNY system when they're making choices about where they might like to go? Do they start with an assumption about what they might like to study? Is the location the more important factor? What tends to be the driving force as students are considering attendance? Yeah, I think it's important for students to think about what it is that they want to study and what they want to get out of that post-secondary experience. Uh, but New York has two flagship universities, so a lot of states, they just have one. Uh, one is Stony Brook down in Long Island. The other is SUNY Buffalo out in uh, the western part of the state. And so if you're a student that wants that traditional research university experience, these are universities that you would want to look into. Now, if you're looking for a, a small liberal arts experience but don't want to pay for a private school education, there are smaller schools like SUNY Geneseo, which was, yeah. you know, identified as a public Ivy. Uh, so you could get this really world-class education. And if you're in-state, you get it at in-state tuition prices. Um, the other exciting thing on the tuition front is that New York's doing these tuition uh, matches for eight states uh, across the U.S. where they'll match the flagship prices um, at, at those in-state tuition, uh, in-state universities, and those include Connecticut, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, Illinois, and California. So I just think of the students there in New Jersey that their flagships, Rutgers, maybe they don't want to be at a large research university. Now they have access to a place like a SUNY Geneseo at the price of Rutgers and state tuition. So they're really great opportunities for even students outside of, of the SUNYs uh, or outside of New York to, to engage with the SUNYs. SUNY Geneseo, whenever I think of that, I remember uh, my senior year of college at uh, Division Three National Ultimate Frisbee Tournament in Versailles, Ohio, playing against SUNY Geneseo. And I think they were the snails. I know that their women's team is called the Escargo, which is fantastic. Um, I, I'm, I think that the men's team was was the snails, if I recall correctly, but that was, that was a while back now. Um, you mentioned flagship universities uh, before I made that aside, uh, both Buffalo and Stony Brook. What What is the definition of a flagship university? Because I sort of think about that as being unitary, um, but you're saying that they're, they're split in two parts. Does that have something to do with their core offerings? Does it have something to do with their research output? How do we define that? 
So this is actually a new initiative taken on by, by the governor of New York. Uh, SUNY operated it sort of as all institutions were equal up until a few years ago. And what they've seen is that they really want to elevate these two institutions in terms of bringing in research dollars for the state. Uh, the state has allocated $100 million in, in research funds to both of these institutions. So as a student wanting to go into a field that's, that's dominant in, in research areas, thinking STEM in particular, um, but there, we all know that research goes on in the social sciences and the humanities as well. These would be the institutions that would draw your interest. And the hope through this program is by identifying two universities within the state and by pushing funds to those colleges to focus on research is that these universities as individuals will be bringing in uh, over a billion dollars a year in, in, in federal research grants. Mm. Um, it's an exciting goal for the state. And I think part of the reason that New York would be sitting on two flagship universities is the fact that it is such a, a large state in terms of population. I, I like that as an admission counselor because of access, right? If you have two spaces that are welcoming students in, that's more room for incoming students. There are more opportunities to be had in that circumstance. I really like that aspect of it. I wanted to ask you about Binghamton because I think Binghamton is one of those schools that for an out-of-stater is perhaps most notable or historically has been among the most notable. I don't know if that's just because Tony Kornheiser went there. He's a, you know, a sports writer who always talks about being a graduate of SUNY Binghamton. So maybe that's my bias coming through. Um, but that's one that I've historically heard the most about. How does it fit into the SUNY system? Yeah. So traditionally the big four have always been Buffalo, Binghamton, Stony Brook, and Albany. And mm. in this new design of having the two flagships be Buffalo and Stony Brook, there's still an added focus on Binghamton and Albany, but as research centers, not necessarily the flagship universities within the system. So okay. students are still going to be able to get uh, a great education and great research experiences at these colleges, but the focuses will be more on specific programs rather than uh, the university as a whole in terms of research investment. That makes sense. And I, I just want to give an aside for all of our listeners, our next segment, we're going to be talking with an admission officer from SUNY at Buffalo to talk a little bit about the Honors College there. So we'll do a deeper dive about what, what kind of opportunities are available for students at the Buffalo campus, which I think is uh, very exciting and, and dovetails nicely with your point about the, the flagship universities having some great opportunities. Out-of-state students. Now, a lot of what you're describing, I think is great. And it's the prerogative of New York to provide some really great access and opportunities for students who are residents of New York. And I love that. I also love the tuition match that you described. I was listening for Oregon, didn't hear it. That's fine. Okay. So Oregon's not in the mix, but to what extent does SUNY look out of state to help to fill their student population? Are they really dominated by in-state students? I mean, New York's got plenty of residents to fill their student populations, um, but how are they thinking about being an attractive destination for out-of-state applicants and, and what are they doing in order to bring them in or not? Absolutely. So this is part of the shift within the thinking in, in the SUNY system. So over the last decade, the SUNY system has seen a 20% decrease in the number of students enrolling in any of the institutions. And so as part of that push is, yes, while New York has uh, a large population, it's an aging population, there are fewer high school graduates coming out of the state. And so it is looking to other states to recruit and to have more of a national presence with its universities. That's why it's elevating some of those universities to flagship status. It's another reason why they're investing specifically in schools that have specialized programs to draw in students that are looking for those particular pathways. One of those institutions that I visited was SUNY ESF, uh, Environmental Science and Forestry Program. 
And this program focuses on all things related to environmental science. And so, yes, they attract a lot of students from in-state, but students across our, our country care about environmental issues. And so they have a very diverse population. And as I, I think I mentioned at the start of the podcast, there are students from every state within the system. And so as students are looking for great research opportunities, specialized programs, they're going to find that within the SUNYs. And part of this, the recruitment included that in-state tuition match with a number of states. Um, but this past year, in December, they were already 110% up in applications, and those wow. were coming from both in-state and out-of-state. So people are beginning to recognize the value of, of these institutions, whether they're paying the in-state or out-of-state tuition prices, and some of the unique features that, that each of these universities bring. That's fantastic. Um, and it really exciting. I think, you know, I always get excited. I think you do too, about growth of public universities, um, that, that have more access and, and when they get more attention, um, it's always a good thing to see. Most people, when they think about New York, I think, um, not in terms of the education system, but they, they think of the city, right? The focal point is New York city. And it's almost as though the rest of New York is forgotten, but we know upstate is phenomenal. Like there, there are so many great things upstate, many great cities, um, many great spaces, many great people. What is the, the role of, to what extent are students that are graduates of New York city schools considering departures to the rest of the state, uh, within the SUNY system as they go to college? Is this something that you find that can be challenging for students who've lived in the city for their whole lives to go away to college, you know, in New York, but still to, to not be in that city environment. How do how did those SUNY sort of square the major difference in terms of the lifestyle between living in a city and living on a campus upstate? Yeah, so many of the campuses upstate have a lot of students from downstate, whether that is the city or Long Island. And I think you get a couple different types of students coming out of the city. One is the students that always want to be in that city environment. and Maybe they're more attracted to a place like a SUNY Buffalo, where they're in a, a city. It's going to feel like a small town to them coming out of New York City, but a city nonetheless. Yeah. And then there are students that have that traditional view of college, of going away to that small college town and having this very eclectic experience before going back to the city and, and living city life. And I, I think one of the draws for, for many of the students outside of the affordability piece is just the reputation of these schools within the SUNY system and the fact that the value of these degrees bring back to a place like New York City. Um, there are communities of alumni throughout New York City. Um, so as students are graduating, heading back home, they can maintain those uh, ties to, to their college community. One of the, the biggest rivalries within this, the small college athletics in, in New York is Ithaca and Cortland. They have a football game that they call Cortica. The Cortica jug is what they compete for. And they actually held that game in, in the Mets stadium. Um, oh, wow. And, excuse me, uh, in the Jets stadium. Cool. And the place cool. was packed. And, and it was because so, there are so many alums in the city and Long Island. And it was it was a really great way to see all these people coming together, supporting their team and just seeing the the strength of that community in, in the city after graduation. Yeah, of course, New York City is not monolithic and, and many people have many different desires as they go away to college and, and want different kinds of experiences. It's a great reminder of that fact. Uh, Ryan, I want to put yourself back in your high school self's shoes. Uh, you were living in Grinnell, Iowa, small town. Uh, going away to college at Grinnell, Iowa, right? Another another small college experience. But let's say that you were talking to your younger self and you were choosing from among the SUNY campuses, which one most stands out to you? Which one is, is the most exciting 
opportunity for a young Ryan Krebs? Oh, that's hard. Picking your favorite Sunni is like picking your favorite kid. I don't know if you're allowed to do that, <laughs> but um, I don't think anybody has ever said that before, by the way, that might be the first time in human existence that someone has said that sentence, but yes, continue, continue. Um, as I was saying, SUNY ESF is such a unique school. And for some reason, I feel myself really drawn to it, but yeah, I didn't study environmental science. I, I studied economics. I really enjoyed that, that small liberal arts experience. I imagine I would have looked at a place like a, a SUNY Geneseo. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that people forget is that there are contract colleges at a number of private universities within the state. So there are SUNY schools within Cornell. And so a student looking mm-hmm. for a selective school and um, a rigorous academic experience can actually find that in a couple of the colleges right there at, at Cornell. And so I think that's probably one of the more aspirational um, schools within in the SUNY system. Uh, but having visited a, a number of the schools, I could start to see myself in, in a number of the places. I know you're talking to, to a rep from SUNY Buffalo coming up and seeing the Honors College there on campus and the small school experience while also getting some of the benefits of a big school place is also a pretty appealing uh, prospect to me too. That's great. A good answer, Ryan. I think you you managed not to single one of your children out here and and you were you were spreading the love across the entire SUNY system. And I appreciate I mean I it's really uh palpable. I think the the sense of excitement that you have at what this system is doing and some of the opportunities that are created by these different campuses. So I appreciate as always your your passion for education, your dedication to to supporting students as they're looking for opportunities in higher ed and Thank you for taking me a novice uh, through the SUNY system. I feel like I know it a little better now. Awesome. Thank you, Ian, and really appreciate the opportunity to talk about all the great things the SUNYs have to offer. Wonderful. We're glad to have you uh, now and anytime. Uh, When we come back, we are going to take all those SUNYs and put a focus right on Buffalo, um, talking about the Honors College at SUNY at Buffalo. So don't go away. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Class. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results... 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice goals. Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. (laughs) 
A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to Getting In, a college coach conversation. We're really excited to continue the conversation about the State University of New York system uh, that we just started with Ryan we're welcoming uh, Tim Matthews, who is the Senior Assistant Director of the Buffalo Honors College, uh, to the conversation today. Hey, Tim, how are you doing? Wonderful, Ian. Thank you for having us today. We're excited to be a, a part of the uh, the podcast. I'm excited to learn much more about uh, the University at Buffalo and, and the Honors College in particular. Uh, I want to let folks know, a reminder, that we have a visual component to this podcast. And if you want to go find us on our Facebook page, you'll see how much Buffalo stuff Tim has. He's got a Buffalo shirt. There's logos and pennants on the wall behind him. Now, Tim, you've got a lot of Buffalo pride is my understanding. And and tell us a little bit about your history with the university, how long you've been there and what your roles have been. Oh, sure. Well, I've been here since actually 1999. I came here with my undergraduate degree um, and then I went into graduate study. So I've been part of the university for just about 24 years. And uh, I do bleed blue. One of my true secrets is as an undergraduate, I spent about four and a half years as Victory Bull, their mascot. So <laughs> one of my uh, my aliases is my time here. Uh, when I finished my graduate degree, it was a master's of informatics. I shifted into working for the undergrad admissions office. So I've got a lot of experience working in that. I was there for about six and a half years, um, did all the travel and recruitment that comes with it. And uh, in 2011, I shifted over to the Honors College and have had the pleasure of doing kind of both an advising role. So I'm familiar with the curriculum and everything that students need to take from all different majors. But I also still continue my admissions and recruitment capabilities and responsibilities. So I get to kind of see the best of both worlds. So it's great because I get to recruit students into our program and then watch them walk across the graduation stage and go on into bigger and brighter and more exciting things as part of that too. So that's very cool. I think that's one of the things that, uh, you know, we former admission officers are, are envious of in some cases, we get to meet these great kids and we read their applications and, and maybe even conduct an interview. But then once they're students, it's a little bit harder to find them on campus because now we're looking for that next class. So I think you found a nice sweet spot there, Tim. Uh, pretty cool. That was that was the thing that really kind of appealed to me about the position when I came into here, and I've worked my way up to senior assistant director, and and really kind of enjoy the role. Like I said, it's just, I love it. I love everything you be, and you know, I've, I'm originally from Rochester, so not too far down the thruway from where our campus is located. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, it's convenient and close to home if I ever need to get there for something too. So a lot of different, a lot of pluses. That's know. great. That's really great to hear. Now I want to start with something that's probably a little bit more recent, and Ryan was talking us through the recent uh, decision to appoint two flagship universities within New York, one uh, down at Stony Brook, one in Buffalo. And I'm curious what the effects, if any, have been that you've noticed on the Buffalo campus as a result of that. Is it just now you've got a new designation or have there been effects that have been felt at the campus for students and learning? You know, we've always kind of viewed ourselves as a flagship, one of the flagship institutions and being a SUNY research center. We're the largest of the public research centers in New York State. Um, we've uh, over 32,000 students now, both undergraduate and graduate population. 
Um, it's, if anything, it's really helped, I think, with our recruitment, hearing that we're a flagship, hearing that we're one of those kind of premier campuses in the SUNY system. And it just kind of validated that when the governor made that uh, announcement for us. And uh, we've seen record numbers of applications. I know SUNY did a free application week last, last year mm-hmm. that really helped and really kind of exploded with our application numbers. We're actually bringing in honors, a record class. We were hoping for about 450 to 500 new students. We have 650 students that deposited wow. as of May wow. 1st. And I really do think that's a testament to kind of being more of a formalized flagship institute. So it's pretty exciting for us. Yeah. So so you said about 32,000 undergrads on yep, campus? about 32,000 total. total. Uh, we got about 22,000 undergraduates, okay. the rest being graduate professional students. Yeah. Great. 22,000 undergrads. I'm guessing about 2,000 in the honors college, given the class size that you just described. Is that is that more or less accurate? Almost. So we, this is last year, we brought in about 400 new students. Okay. Um, we are going to hit 2,000. They would like us to be 10% of the incoming freshman class each year. Makes sense. So that makes we're, sense. Uh, we've exceeded that. I think our, it goes to our recruitment efforts. And, you know, again, I think our reputation is a big help too. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, demographics. You might be the person to answer this question. Um, I was talking with Ryan a little bit about in-state, out-of-state. And one of those cool initiatives within the SUNY system of um, being able to pay your in-state tuition at a state university of New York if you come from eight states uh, that are designated as partners in in that space. Um, What is the population percentage of New Yorkers at the university and then how is that mirrored perfectly within the honors college? Or do you find there are more or fewer out-of-state students within the honors college? We, we've increased our out-of-state enrollment. That's been a big plus too, because I think if you look at comparable states and in-state tuitions from other institutions, we're actually pretty competitive, I think, with some of the costs. Not every, of course. So some of those, that in-state tuition is really kind of a, really a benefit to some of the other schools outside of our state. Um, we mirror what the rest of the university has as far as out-of-state recruitment goes. I want to say we're roughly around 10%. I'd have to check with admissions to get the exact numbers. Um, It's roughly what we're at with the Honors College with our our out-of-state student population here. So it's steadily increased. I think some of it's with the Honors College and the benefits that we can provide and the customized advising experience that we could offer. That's certainly a big help. Yeah, I'd love to. I want to spend the bulk of our time talking a little bit about the Honors College experience, but we are an admissions podcast. And so I think sometimes it is helpful to talk a little bit about how the admission process to the Honors College might differ or um, ask for additional content beyond what is being requested with the the basic uh, university application. So what do students who are applying to the Honors College need to provide in order to be considered by you and your team uh, in order to, to gain admission to the Honors Program? Of course, usually students can apply to UB right now and most of the SUNY schools, either via the SUNY application or the common application. A bulk of our, our interest, the bulk of the students who apply are applying with that common application. Yeah. And to apply to honors, it's very simple. There's a separate additional essay. So you've got the general essay when you're applying on the common app. And then there's a section in the academic section for us that says, do you want to apply to the University of Buffalo Honors College? If they check off, yes, there's a very short answer essay. It's, uh, I think, 650 words or less. That's it. And um, it's just, you know, helping us to get to know the the students a little bit better. Um, A review of applicants consists of both an academic side of things. We're looking for, obviously, strong academics, GPA, regents exam scores, final exam scores for out-of-state students. Uh, We don't really focus as much on serious test scores. I'm sure you're hearing a lot about this now. It's really 
starting to become more, I don't know, of an option. It's been an option at UB and continues to be that for most of the SUNY schools right now, if not all of them. Um, so we really don't focus as much on that. We are looking for responses and extracurricular activities and involvement. We like to see a diversity of involvement, some leadership experiences, perhaps, um, you know, sports captains and section leaders and bands and orchestras and choruses and yeah. scouting. I mean, this type of thing is definitely considered as part of our review process. And then, of course, the responses in the general essay and then the essay to the Honors College as well. Uh, we also, if students are playing the SUNY application, we encourage you to reach out to us because we'll supply our supplemental application link. But I'm seeing a much smaller percentage of students applying with that SUNY app. I mean, people still do. And we're going to give you the same consideration that we would whatever method. Yeah, of course. Have. Of course. Yeah. Is there a letter of recommendation component for applying to SUNYs? There is, but I don't believe it's recommended for some school, schools. Yeah, I've noticed, at least with our applicants, some students provide them, some don't. I, I would say most of our applications have at least a, a counselor recommendation, a guidance counselor recommendation at the very least. Um, a lot of them are coming with a teacher recommendation. That's helpful to us. But we do know that in some cases, they're, they they kind of have a, a template, some of the, the teachers in the classrooms. So that's something we take into consideration. We don't hold it against students if it's so kind of, of like a, you know, you see a lot of that in some cases. Yeah. Now, the, you were really... I heard you speaking a lot to extracurricular involvement and of course the essays and the way that students describe their experience in their own words, but it really, for me, underscores the fact that these honors colleges are communities that, that you are bringing in students into a learning community that is uh, in many ways, quite, quite a bit more intimate than what you might get at a larger university. It's, it's, it is a best of both worlds kind of opportunity when you look at an honors college, because you have all of the offerings of a major research university, but you still get the benefit of that more intimate community. I want to hear um, if you can speak a little to what that first year experience looks like and how students start to connect with one another, the role that advising plays for them, uh, and and core classes, if any, that that students are participating in collectively that that create a sort of um, common experience among students, regardless of what their their major may be. I mean, you hit it right off after the start. I mean, that community that we can provide. So when you got a large campus like UB. Honors colleges across the nation can provide you that small college field that maybe you can't get at a large research center. Yeah, they're fantastic. You know, my, yeah, my advising caseload is much smaller. Um, I have probably between, uh, give or take, probably about 70, 80 new freshmen that I work with each year. Mm -hmm. So it's a much smaller caseload. We really get to know our students personally by name. And our communications with them, I think, are much quicker than a general advising office. Other advisors on campus and other institutions are going to have upwards of 150 plus you know, new students to kind of work with. Um, that's, it can be challenging into getting to know your students. It's harder for other advising units to do that. Um, we're very fortunate that we have that opportunity. And I tell our students, when we see them, we're going to know your name, know your story, say hello to you. When you see you, see you in the halls, you won't be a number as, as part of our program. And the freshman experience kind of starts with our advising. We're just wrapping up our one-on-one -on -one and some of our group sessions for incoming freshmen, helping them to build and plan their schedules, register them for their first semester, I'm kind of talking to them in the, some of those logistics about what to prepare for when you start here. But more than anything, I, I take time to, and we all do, we take time with our students to say, what are you doing fun this summer? Kind of giving that personalized attention that we care because we do. We like to hear about some of the fun things. And I got two young kids at home, so it's it's tough to kind of, I can live out some of their adventures through their uh, experiences, which is a big plus. But, uh, you know, the next thing that we do is at the start of the school year, we have a, what we call a freshman kickoff. 
Yeah. And in that kickoff experience, that's our version of orientation. And it's more Mm -hmm. of a fun thing to get you excited to be here as a student, realize what it's like to be part of the honors community. We've got some breakout sessions. We give them some honor swag. We feed them lunch. We do our big letter H honors college photo with our freshman class, which you can see in a lot of our marketing materials and whatnot. And then when we shift into the fall semester, we start talking with them about their fall schedule and long-term planning and teaching them how to register, but also bringing in staff and advisors from their academic departments so they can make a stronger connection with them as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as you talk about that, I, I mean, it sounds, sounds great. I'm curious whether you can articulate or, or if you've noticed where the sort of core affiliation that honor students have is like, do they feel like Buffalo first, honor second. Do they feel honors first, Buffalo second? Is there any way of separating that? Um, how do students kind of identify uh, as they come into the university and, and start to cultivate this honors community? You know, early on, I can see them being a little bit more closely aligned with honors when they get to their upper level coursework. That's when we see them immerse themselves in their academic departments. Because as you get into those upper level courses, they get so busy. They get involved in research and internships and experiential learning opportunities. While they still have the resources and the benefits of honors, we really uh, we see them find more time. We want them to immerse themselves in their departments. But we tell them from the beginning, you know, we want you to participate in honors. But and we see this, it's kind of across the board so, uh, of different experiences. Some students are really close to honors, are visiting our lounge almost every day. But there's other students that spend more time in their department and come see us when they need us. And that's okay with us. And we do want to let them know that these resources are here for them, like priority registration. And they get a faculty fellow in their second semester here as a freshman. Mm-hmm. So many to connect with early on to get to know a little bit better and, and help them better prepare for upper level coursework than I ever could. I mean, yeah. some yeah. of these, these students here, they're, they're all so bright. It's just amazing and really kind of blessed to get to work with them for sure. One of the things that, that I think our listeners, I hope, are taking note of that I think is um, a real hallmark of honors programs in general, but I'm hearing from Buffalo as well is, is connection, connection with staff, connection with faculty, knowing who you can go to, um, essentially figuring out how to navigate what is a very complex university system, um, and being able to find people who are go-to. And so this is why I always am a big proponent of honors college programs for students who feel like they want to take on the additional work, because I think that it's, it's a fantastic opportunity. But I also think it's a good reminder for students who might not be a part of an honors college program to make those connections, to find faculty that they want to work with, because you can cultivate a kind of honors adjacent experience if you are going out and talking to your advisor and connecting with faculty members. You don't have to be long to the honors college. It's a great way to make it easier on you, but there are also other ways, I think, to get the most out of the university. Um, do you find that honors students have a better kind of Rolodex of skills that they can use as they're making those connections because they've done that practice of connecting with staff and faculty early on as a sort of forced fun element of the the program? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I really do think so. I mean, I just, with our graduating class this year, it was just so fun meeting some of our, our scholars. Like we have a Marshall scholar this year, mm. which is pretty prestigious. If you're familiar, maybe you're, yeah. if you're, you're um, you know, listeners aren't as familiar, that's basically getting a full ride to a British institution. I mean, one student's going to Oxford for free is part of that. And we're pretty lucky to obviously have that as a resource here too. Uh, our academic director, Dr. Pat McDevitt, he's a history professor, but he's the Fulbright advisor for the entire campus. You know, we find that 
early connection, being able to connect with Dr. McDevitt and some of our other faculty affiliated with their department gives them a leg up on some of these prestigious awards. Another student's a Fulbright winner. She's going to be going to Harvard next year on a scholarship. You know, we, we see students go there and we see students that stay right here on campus and stay right up straight through some of our PhD programs. So again, having those connections early on, but introducing them from their from the start and not finding out junior, senior year when in some cases it might be too late for them. You know, we're able to kind of kind of corral them into that, but teach them early on and provide those workshops right in our honors college space, which I think is a big help. And not for nothing, they want the best of the best on our campus. They're coming here, they're coming to honors, honors programs here and other colleges, universities to find the, the best and the brightest that the campuses have to offer. I love your description of some of the the outgoing pathways that are connected to academia. And we've we've got a little bit of time left. And I'm just curious if you can speak to outcomes, right? Because I think parents especially are focused on this. Students, of course, are as well. What does an honors college give me in terms of a leg up for my future career, for my future studies? How do you provide support for students in that space? This kind of goes back to connections too. I mean, yeah, I've got connections sure. with faculty, all of us in different departments and units here. Uh, having Dr. McDevitt as a resource, Dr. St. George is our administrative director. Again, people who can connect you with others on campus, if not themselves, they can provide those resources. Um, you know, when I talk with students, I, I let them know and their families know that I'm working for you and I want to help you to carve your path to find out what is best for your future and your game plan going forward. So it's really important to me and I want to see them be successful because what it comes back to is our recruitment. They see these students go on to success and they want to come here to our program. And, you know, it definitely helps us. It makes it easier to bring a new class in and to help with retention. I mean, that's big too. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, it's such a good reminder. You know, I think whenever you read press around admission processes, people are so focused on school ranking and they think about prestige and, and what really matters is the effort that you put in the connections that you make. And, and there are so many different opportunities that are available to you and you can get a world-class education at university of Buffalo. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to go to a place that admits 5%, 10% of their applicants. You can actually go to a place that's much more rich in terms of its diversity and much more, I think, exciting in terms of the potential pathways that lie ahead for you. So Tim, thanks for talking us through this. I think we could do this all day, but we're just yep. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's great to have you. Uh, when we uh, come back next week, we're going to be talking a little bit about supplemental essays because it's the season for that. Tim, of course, referred to a couple of essays that are required for the Honors College, right? One, one additional supplemental essay. So we'll talk through that. We'll also start discussion about the activities list, which is where you can share the components of your resume. And, and it's important for those to come across quite clearly, whether you're applying to an Honors College in Buffalo or anywhere else. And finally, we expect that there will be a decision around student loans at the federal level. We're going to talk a little bit about those impacts for our student borrowers. So uh, tune in next week when we cover all three topics. Until then, we hope you have a great start to the month of July and all the best from our team at College Coach. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. New episodes drop every Thursday. The goal of this show is to demystify the college admissions process for families around the globe. To help with this mission, please leave a review and share with your friends. And to learn more about Bright Horizons College Coach, visit getintocollege.com.